Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to this week's episode where we are covering chapters 17 and 18, aka the first two episodes of season three of The Mandalorian. And I'm so excited to be back with Din and Grogu. Our little Grogu is growing up so quickly. So fast. So fast. But we are actually, you know, we're recording this on March 8th. So the show came out last week. And if you follow us on uh, social media or anything, you know that we were super lucky to get to go to the Mandalorian premiere in uh, Los Angeles, where they did show us both episodes that night. And these episodes go together so well that we kind of thought it would be better to talk about them both uh, this week, which is why we didn't do an episode last week. So if you were wondering why there was kind of this I guess like a blip in coverage. That was why, uh, because we thought it would make more sense to do both episodes this week. The blip in coverage. We have released three episodes last week. I know. (laughs) One of them was an interview with with the crew. Right after Dave Filoni on Sky Talkers. It's fine. It's chill. Uh, Everything is great. (laughs) Also, yeah, we're we're obviously still. I still can't. I can't believe that happened. So no. I'm sure if you've been a longtime listener, we talked about how we can't believe that happened on that episode, and I still just haven't recovered from it. Mm -hmm. So thank you so much for all the kind words that you gave us about us doing the Mandalorian press. It was so nice and very heartwarming, and I don't know. It was a really big moment for Caitlin and I, and it it means a lot that you guys were really responsive. And yeah, we had some viral moments. That was a little crazy. (laughs) Well, okay. (laughs) Before we before we uploaded the episode, Charlotte was like, what if one of these gets picked up on Reddit? And we were like, yeah, what if? And then, and then it was like front page and it's all this timeline stuff. And I just I was like, that's I can't. not what I would have expected to come out. Um, for those of you that don't know what we're talking about, one of the – it wasn't – I can't remember whose question it was, but someone's question to Dave and John had, was about the timeline, but it, w- it was very general if I remember the question. It wasn't like a give me a beat by beat. And John's answer was ambiguous at best, confusing at worst. <laughs> Um, so I will say, uh, he, he said something along the lines of it's been two years, but in my personal opinion, it wasn't super clear if he was saying two years that Grogu was with Luke Skywalker, if it's been two years since the last season, or if it's been two years for the audience. I don't know. I feel I like I don't even we know. can't really even speak on it right now because I, I, I don't think we know. I don't think we just we don't know. know. And I think that John's answer was confusing. And uh, anyway, that's the piece that went viral. And then people were asking him about it on the red carpet, too, uh, at the <laughs> premiere. Like, and I was like, uh, all right. OK. All right. It wasn't even our question. No, it wasn't our also, question, but it was we from were just our... the first people who uploaded. I don't know. It's so it, crazy. It was funny. It was uh, it was a lot, but yeah, I mean, the, the Dave Filoni of it all, you know, if you've followed mm-hmm. Sky Talkers for any amount of time, you know, you know, you know, you know, and it just meant a lot to us to have, see all your kind words because you all know how much it meant to us because, you know, you've been listening. So, and it, yeah, it was just, it was super meaningful. So thank you all for your kind responses. We were looking at them all day and it really, it was like, wow, all of you have been on this journey with us and just felt really nice to like share it with all of you. So thank you. Yes, definitely. And also, I feel like it's important to say that so then we did those interviews and the next day was the premiere event and it was raining. It was like the worst time in Los Angeles, <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> like weather wise. It was a great we had a great couple days, but it was cold and rainy and a kind of a mess in terms of weather yeah. and the opposite of what you expect when you go to California from the East Coast when it's it was actually snowing here at home in New York. So yeah, I was wasn't expecting like literally the same weather in Los <laughs> Angeles, but it's all right. But I feel like when we go to these things or anything like that, like you guys might want to know how the reactions in the audience were to both these episodes. And it was so fun. I think mm-hmm. that this first episode 
was really funny and just like really joyful. And you really felt that in the theater. And it was also really cool because there were pe- we were surrounded by people who actually worked on the shows and people in crew gear for Boba Fett, Ahsoka, The Mandalorian, like everyone has been working on it that was around us. And I guess we were in some selfie with Deborah Chow also. Oh, and yeah. That was cool. <laughs> very far, far ahead distance. Of us. <laughs> yeah, I had no idea that they were right down there below us. And it was, it's just, it, I don't know, it was wild to be in the audience experiencing that. And because you don't really get that for the television shows. So experiencing that joy, I think, was really fun. And mm-hmm. it was just wild to think that, you know, people around us perhaps, you know, worked on, I don't know, animating the mythosaur or something. That, that is so crazy. They know, so They know things. They know things. <laughs> and I think that sometimes some of those people made it might have been like anticipating our reactions, too. Oh, yeah, and that was absolutely. really cool. Yeah. I think that in comparison to other like events we have gone to, this one was like a sort of a rowdy, rambunctious crowd. And that made it actually really fun, I think. Well, you think it it has been a long time since the the show, The Mandalorian, since the last season of it, season two. Of course, we saw them, all these characters in the book of Boba Fett, but The Mandalorian as a standalone show or as its own show, it's been two years. It's been a long time. And uh, I think the cast and crew uh, spoke about this, you know, in their interviews and stuff like that, like on the red carpet and everything about how they've been waiting so long for this to come out and it's finally here. And I think there's that kind of energy too when you have uh, like inclement weather basically that there's just this kind of frenetic energy um, a little bit and it's like, okay, wow, we like, we all made it and stuff like that. And um, they, they had to change like the entire setup of the red carpet to basically be split uh, between two different buildings. Like usually it would all be outside where like the, all the celebrities and cast and crew walk on the red carpet and like people like us like go down before and like go into the theater first and then all the cast and crew come down and like do their interviews and stuff like that but they had to separate it out so like all of the cast and crew were actually in um, a hotel and then where all of the like guests and fans went was into the theater but also through like the Ghirardelli Ghirardelli ice cream store too (laughs) like and you know that all of that was so last minute and just the logistics of getting that all figured out and then you finally get to your seat and it's like okay like we all made it you know it's time it's here I don't know there's just kind of a different energy I think when things don't go according to plan ahead of time and you finally make it to the thing it's like wow okay it was all all right in the end Speaking, I guess, from like an event standpoint. It was great. So I'm really excited to talk about it because I think afterwards we're like, wow, there was a lot to talk about and Mm -hmm. a lot to digest and sort of now with two episodes, there's eight episodes this season. So we're like a fourth of the way through. (laughs) Oh, so sad. It's so sad. It makes me so sad. We've been waiting for so long and here we are. But anyway, so let's start with chapter 17, The Apostate, directed by Rick Famuyiwa. Okay, so again, we get Rick excelling in the weirdness of an episode. So what do you think about this episode, Caitlin? This episode was so fun. It was... It, one thing I said to Charlotte after we left is I was like, there's a completely different tone to this season. And I think one of the things that really stood out to me in these two episodes was that Din talks so much more than I think he ever has in the past seasons. And he's talking to Grogu, which he talked so much to Grogu, which was just so cute and endearing. And it's like there's no questions now about this duo being father and son. You know what I mean? And it was something that just it, it really stood out to me. But what I want to talk about is the name of the episode. You know, this was actually one of our backup questions for Dave Filoni and John Favreau. <laughs> was about episode titles because it's something we talk a lot about in the show. And I kind of want more information on where these names come from. So what was your first reaction to the title, The Apostate? Um, My first reaction, if I'm being completely honest, was, oh, the title leaks were correct. Remember? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I turned to you, I'm like, they right. were right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there were very few leaks about this season, which I very much appreciate. But the title leaks are something that I do like to read and 
theorize about. Anyway, um, I think it's a really good title and I think it's a really interesting way to start the season. I feel like this season feels like it's going to be very thematic. This is a word that I feel like you have to if you do, you don't use it in your everyday speech, I guess. No. So it it is sort of begging you to think about it, look it up, and um, wonder how this has anything to do with Din. And I really appreciated that. Yeah, I think the definition of apostate is an interesting one to think about in regards to Din because it's someone who has abandoned or rejected their religion. And it kind of, it it makes it feel more like a choice. Like Din said, I no longer want to be a Mandalorian. And so he becomes an apostate. But I, I don't really think that's how we're supposed to read Din right now. Like he's doing everything he can not to be an apostate. He doesn't want to abandon or reject his religion. Now, I wonder if this is something we'll reflect on differently in the future about where Din ultimately ends up uh, and his relationship to the creed specifically and and maybe even to Mandalar. But I thought that I thought this was a great uh, title, you know, and of course, the next title too, the Minds of Mandalore. It's all there's a very ominous tone, I think, over these titles and kind of the vibe that I think we're getting in these first couple of episodes, especially in episode uh, or in chapter 18, like Mandalore itself is very ominous. But Mm -hmm. that being said, this episode was so funny, especially everything on Navarro. I think everyone was laughing. It, it was it was so funny. I Navarro was was great, but I we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves. We have this ceremony which which started the episode of the the other Mandalorians uh, with the armorer and the kid being initiated with the creed. You and I both, I think thought this was a flashback when it first came on mm-hmm. screen. I think most people did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really thought it was a flashback. And I was ready for it to be a flashback. Honestly, I was mm-hmm. like, all right, we're going here. I think it preserved that delight, I guess, that surprise of Din coming around the corner, though, which I, I did appreciate. I was like, oh, okay, this is different than what I thought. It kind of changes my entire thinking about it. Because it's an interesting thing to think that that was in the past. Because I was like, oh, this is a ritual that happened before with Din. This is when he put on his helmet for the first time. And this is something that he is thinking about maybe it's something that he is might perform or want to have perform for Grogu, right? Um, and I think you can still think that about this group of Mandalorians, right? You can still think that maybe that's what Din wants to do for Grogu. But for me, it was interesting because I was looking at it very critically, like this is very cult-like and then when I realized that it was still happening, that that was that, that was happening present day. But I think what makes this scene quite interesting and why, honestly, you and I really wanted to talk about these two episodes in conjunction is when this creature came out of the water, I would turn to you. I was like, is that the mythosaur? Yeah. And it's not. But then we see the mythosaur in the second episode. And what we see in this episode is Din totally take out the mythosaur. For me, I felt like uncomfortable. I felt like, no, this is a the natural world coming out to stop this like mm-hmm. baptism into this cult, right? This in, intense group of Mandalorians. When I thought this was a flashback, I thought that Din was being interrupted in his joining of this group in this like initiation ceremony and this baptism. Um, but since it's not Dan, it's another child, which I think it might be Paz's foundling or son or both. Anyway, that's beside the point, because if we want to parallel this to the next episode, when Din is trying to be redeemed for his transgressions uh, in in the minds of Mandalore and the living waters, he is also interrupted by the mythosaur. So there's these things that the natural world is interrupting these highly religious practices that maybe shouldn't be in place that we should be questioning as an audience, you know? Yeah, totally. Nature is against the the creed is, I think, kind of the message that we're pulling from here. So it does lead one to wonder what will happen with the mythosaur that we see in episode two. Will Din end up slaying it? Will Bo-Katan end up killing the mythosaur? Like what is I think that's like the big question with Mandalore right now and with like what the story is going to tell us is, you know, if we're seeing these moments get interrupted, is the point to find a way to 
maintain the creed while living in conjunction with nature? Is it to overcome nature? Is it to form a new path for what Mandalore is on? Or is it to like completely keep figuring out how to maintain the creed, like I said, and, and overcome nature in this in this perspective? I don't know. I honestly think that like the Mandalorian culture, how I think Star Wars fans view Mandalore, perhaps even how the writers view Mandalore, I feel like it could go a lot of different ways. I mean, I think that I think that there is a different path, right? I think we're being led to believe that the creed is not not the way, is not the way. <laughs> this is not the way. <laughs> this is not the way. <laughs> this is not the way. Oh my gosh. I This reminds me, uh, our friend Josh had the most hilarious joke on Twitter today about episode two of when Din is going all different directions to these different planets. And he said, this is the ways, like ways maps. <laughs> <laughs> just sorry. I just thought that made me laugh so hard this morning. But um, go, going back to the the serious matter of the creed and the mythosaur, <laughs> I think the question of the season and and ultimately of Din and his path in in the war in the galaxy is what is his relationship going to be to the creed, and is Din supposed to be the one to now slay the mythosaur again? Should he be doing that? Is that the right thing to do for this new chapter of Mandalore? I don't I don't think so. Slaying is an interesting word that you're using there because later in episode two, actually, when she reads, when Bo-Katan reads the plaque, she says taint that the first Mandalore, Mandalore the Great tamed the mythosaur. So here in this first mm-hmm. interaction, we get Din coming in and shooting and killing ultimately this alligator creature who we might have mistaken for the mythosaur for a second. And then maybe in the second episode when we're introduced to this, are we supposed to think that that's going to happen again? It doesn't. They're saved. Bo saves him. And they're left thinking, oh my gosh, the legend is real. The mythosaur is alive. It's it's not a myth. It's fact. <laughs> you you have to wonder, okay, so in that iteration where we first started the season, was that actually the right way to go? Was violence the answer there? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think that I think we should put a pin in this conversation and return to it when we actually see some more action with the mythosaur and see how it reflects up upon each other. Yeah, I think just to sorry, just to add on to that, I feel like I kind of got lost in the sauce a little bit in my own conversation <laughs> earlier. I, I think that's a really good point to bring up that the plaque does say that he, he tamed the beast. He didn't slay the beast. You're absolutely right to bring that up, Charlotte. And I think that that is how Jews Mandalore remember their history, right? Their initial feeling is to attack, to destroy, to uh, kill the beast when maybe it's once they realize that that's not actually the right path, that's when we can start to rebuild Mandalore again and become, you know, Mandalore the Great. Speaking of taming and slaying the beast, um, let's talk about a different beast that really just took the theater by storm. And that beast was the brief glimpse into the Purgles. Oh, you can't <laughs> even talk about this because. I told Charles before we started, I was like, I'm, I could just talk about the Purgles. This did something to me on a molecular level. I, uh-huh. I don't even know why. Lives were changed. Lives were changed. <laughs> it, I like, I, I think I, I made a noise in the theater <laughs> that I didn't expect it to come out of me. Like, I don't, I don't know what the heck just happened. That was incredible. <laughs> I just, I know that we're freaking out here, but on a more serious note, it's another, when I say like, let's talk about another beast, like Ezra didn't tame the Purgle, right? Ezra worked with the Purgle. And I wonder if that could be a sort of parallel about how Din and Bo see the Mythosaur. I don't know, but it was an interesting inclusion here. Obviously, I think this is to get us ready for the Ahsoka series, but I it really did something to me. And it was one of those moments that was so beautiful because it was a moment of pause too for Grogu to experience the world and his little like pod, his little viewport, his little car seat. And just, it was a moment of wonder. Oh my God, it was amazing. It was so good. It was so good. <laughs> it was just this moment of yeah, there are bigger things out there in the galaxy and the galaxy is waiting for you kind of feeling for Grogu. I don't know. It was just, 
I'm sure, you know, on a very, there could be something there that ties into the Ahsoka series, you know, coming out later this year, but it really did just feel like this moment of Grogu, like seeing the galaxy around him. Like I found myself wondering, like, does Din see these? Is Din aware enough to see the Purgles or is it just something that Grogu can see almost similar to how Ezra has that sensitivity towards towards creatures? Um, if Grogu has something like that too, I don't know. It was just, like I said, I if you had told me that a shot of the Purgles and the Mandalorian would make me cry, I don't think I would have believed you because like, listen, I'm, I'm here for the Purgles. I love the Purgles. We all love the Purgles. Mm-hmm. But I didn't expect to be overwhelmed by the Purgles in kind of the emotional way that I was. <laughs> and I very much was. It, yeah, it just, it was a beautiful shot. And it just, the whole theater, you could really tell the people that were rebels, people in the theater too, that were like, oh my God. Um, and then like, I think everyone like appreciated the beauty of the shot itself. And and even if you don't know what the Purgles are, to see these huge creatures kind of in a distance through a uh, hyperspace, I think is also just an incredible, like, whoa, what is that? You know, like, wow. I've had to explain it to a couple people and they were like, wow, that was so cool. I don't know what that was. And yeah. I was like, well, let me tell you what it is. <laughs> it's the coolest <laughs> thing ever. It's a, yeah. a hyperspace traveling whale. It's a space whale. It's a space whale. <laughs> <laughs> oh, anyway, especially now, like having um, like inf- more information about the Purgles from, hi- from the High Republic about how they would... Um, or I guess this was also introduced in Rebels too, but I guess more information like from that time period of the High Republic of people of the the use of the Purgles with Jedi still being kind of folklore at that point too in the timeline way back when. It's just, it's so mystical. It's right up our weird Force stuff alley. And I freaking loved it. It's definitely like top three moment for me in these two episodes. It really... Yes, it really was. It was a great moment. And I'm, yeah, I, it was really nice to not have that even be spoiled or just mm-hmm. to be like absolutely just surprised and delighted by that. That was amazing. Also, the music was really good. I We have a new composer for this who did the music, I think, for Book of Boba Fett. I need to double check that. I realize I didn't double check that. But Joseph Shirley, his music is more orchestral and more cinematic versus like kind of experimental that Ludwig did before. Ludwig's scores are unbelievable and amazing too. And Joseph worked underneath him um, in a lot of ways and shadowed him. And I'm very happy for Joseph's musical score for this season. I think it is as cinematic as this season already feels like it is. This season to me feels really linear already in a way more than season two, which I felt we were ping-ponging all over the place. I will say week to week, I felt like that. Binging it, I rewatched season one and two and I had like a spiritual experience (laughs) rewatching The Mandalorian. Like I can't even tell you guys, if you haven't done this, if you haven't been to the series and you have only watched it week to week when it was airing, please go back and binge it. It was really great. I so enjoyed it. And I felt like a normie, I guess, watching it and like experiencing it. And then I realized why so many people just love this series. I mean, I always realized that, but I think I've been pretty like honest on the show about how I've been extremely surprised about how many people just love the Mandalorian, like people I would not expect to love the Mandalorian. And I think I really understood that more when I binge the series. Anyway, I feel like this season with these two episodes is already on a more linear journey than we were in with season two. Season one was definitely more linear too. That had a beginning and an end. I'm very happy just where we are right now. I think that this is a stronger beginning than, oh, I don't know. Okay. I can't really say that, but (laughs) anyway, never mind. (laughs) It's still really good. Let's move on to talk about Navarro. Navarro is transformed. (laughs) It is a new place. Major glow up. Yeah. Super major glow up. And I love this for grief. Um, I think We've talked a lot about the gates of hell and how Navarro represented something that was like it was ashen, it was barren, it was hellish, it was outlawy, it was tumbleweed vibes type of situation. Um, the vibes and na- tumbleweed, yeah, the vibes tumbleweed. The vi- like it was, it was not, 
giving. It was not a place that you wanted to be. It was not giving. <laughs> Correct. And now it's giving. It's giving everything. <laughs> and I think <laughs> this is really cool, I think, to track a little bit. Not to talk about John Favreau's time <laughs> timeline situation, but <laughs> this is the point. I guess, you know how in stories there are just indicators that show the passage of time? Mm-hmm. Navarro is one of those. And I think it's really cool to see the transformation. And a lot of this episode, I think, was grief just touring him around being like, look at all the things <laughs> that change. And I loved that. I enjoyed that. I love Grief's character because I just think every line that he says is sort of like uh, riding the line between pompous and adoring too. And I loved that. I loved his little cape droids. Those made me squeal. (laughs) I was just like, look at those. Wow. (laughs) That was, that was so great. I think uh, to get a little mythic, um, we start with Navarro in this lava state and now we're in Navarro in this very green state um very beautiful very lush very natural state I guess and I think that the transformation is really interesting especially when you think about episode two chapter 18 when uh Din is describing Mandalore and how Mandalore used to be green used to be beautiful used to be lush um way like a long time ago and now it's not like that so I think showing this transformation and the fact that transformation and sort of redemption I guess is possible through a city a town the like main location in the Mandalorian I think is symbolic of perhaps what's to come or what we should expect from Din um I still think that like his quest for redemption is misplaced, even though I understand why he would want to, I don't know, feel a sense of belonging again to where he was raised in. I do think that a different sort of redemption or a different sort of change is imminent for Din, but not in the way that he expects because a story isn't fun if you get the redemption that you expect right you gotta have to a little bit of a a change a surprise for the character themselves yeah I think that Din's redemption will look a lot different but I think you bring up bring up a good point that Navarro is is an example that change can come that positive that a place can be renewed actually and Navarro's change came after uh, like the episodes, you know, I think of the sin and uh, in episode three in season one about everything that happened then with, you know, Grogu and Din and, um, you know, them taking Grogu off of Navarro and, and everything like that, you know, that feels kind of like a transition point too. And everything that happened at the end of season one is when grief kind of took it upon himself to begin this change in Navarro. And it really does feel like this could be a blueprint to show that, yeah, it is possible for Mandalore too to rise from the ashes, to uh, turn a new leaf, to become green again. It feels like they all keep talking about it so much that in a hopeful world, in a hopeful galaxy, we would get to see that for Mandalore. I'm curious to see where we do actually ultimately end up because of course we're headed towards the the time of the first order so <laughs> what is a happy ending in star wars <laughs> for an entire mm-hmm. planet but i think mm-hmm. we're seeing that with navarro and proof that it can happen so if it can happen there you know with as we talked a ton about the gates of hell it can happen you know, on Mandalore too. And I think that, you know, the descent of Din in episode two to the ma- to the mines at the very bottom, that kind of felt like a descent into hell itself. Um, so I think that we can draw those parallels there. But I got to say that just our, our time in general on Navarro, I, I think is laying the seeds for a lot of things to come in the future. It did kind of feel like this really quick tour of what's going on and like bada bing bada boom knock out some pirates get the droid and we're out you know maybe look at some real estate options (laughs) but it does feel like some of these things could be coming up in the future right ig 11 i I love that din is so like yeah no that droid that's my guy (laughs) it's like din has gotten over his prejudice against droids in a lot of ways but but that one but also hasn't and only wants the droid that he trusts or like was grew to trust Mm -hmm. and I think that there's a lot of symbolism that happens when IG comes back to life and um wants to kill Grogu 
and then they take him out and Dan goes, I think he defaulted to his old programming. Like, oh, Captain Obvious, yes. (laughs) But also that's exactly what Din is experiencing right now. He got Grogu back and guess what? He's defaulting to his old programming. He is only thinking about how he can be seen redeemed in the eyes of his cultish leader. So I don't know. I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued to see what happens. There's a lot of yeah, there's a lot of rebirth and resetting of yes. things. So it's I felt like in my rewatch of season one and season two, I could not get over how obvious the like parent birth imagery was. I was like, this is over the top. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't know if that was I it, I think that was pretty obvious to me when we were watching it week to week, but it was it couldn't be more obvious in the rewatch when you binge it all and you see it, how it all fits together. And um, I think that that is now coming on an individual level for Din when before it, the story was really about like, are is Din meant to be a parent figure for Grogu? And I think now we're at the point where yeah, that's true. Din is meant to be a parent figure for Grogu, but how does he heal himself individually? Is the main question I think. The ultimate question, right, like you were saying, is what kind of parent is Din going to be? You know, at what point does he realize what he needs for himself? What What is actually best for Grogu and what is best for himself? I think those are the questions that he's asking himself now. Um, and he thinks that his redemption is ultimately what's best for Grogu because to him, Grogu is a foundling. Grogu is Mandalorian. And these are the things that he has to do to be the best Mandalorian for his Mandalorian foundling now. So... I think that's where we'll be headed a lot of this season. But yeah, the, the our time on Navarro was well spent, I think. My favorite was uh, when Din tells Grief what Grogu's name is because he keeps calling him like the kid, the child. He goes, his name is Grogu. And there's this pause and Grief goes, if you say so. <laughs> and you and I were laughing a couple weeks ago. There's this article. I can't remember where it came from. This interview with Rick where he heard he was talking about when he heard the name Grogu and his response was basically like, that's different. <laughs> this feels like that moment, too. And I don't know. Carl Weathers has such good comedic timing, I think, to your point earlier about how he plays it as adorable, but also like pompous, but also just like really excited about Din. There's also just this slight undertone, I think, of sarcasm and maybe even like a a hint of parody that doesn't come across right. But there's something about it that's just like this underlying comedy to Grief Karga as well that I kind of love. And I think yes. that's out in full force when we have all of our Anzelians. Uh, Anzelians? Um, I actually don't know how to pronounce it because we've I, talked so little about this. <laughs> and to be honest, I really dislike Babu Frick in The Rise of Skywalker. But here, this whole scene was hilarious. It was so and good. I was... On the floor dying. Was, I, I don't even know. It was so funny. The staging, it, to me, it's the staging mm-hmm. that made it so funny. Yeah, exactly. First off, the puppetry was, like, amazing. And then the fact that Din is In there. so large. Yeah. And then Grief is <laughs> translating. Doesn't need to translate, but he's translating. And it's so funny. He says, if you can find it. <laughs> yes. I got it. It's just <laughs> so perfect. And my mom keeps telling me she's like no squeezy bad baby (laughs) (laughs) she everyone is obsessed with it every single person is like that was the funniest thing ever and honestly in in the theater it really was also yeah i was truly dying it really is funny uh we also have to talk very briefly here about the pirates pirate king gorian shard i felt (laughs) like i was hallucinating i've never seen anything like that in star wars and I was like, oh my God. Who is-? It was like it was like Davy Jones mixed with Dren Gear yeah. mixed with it was I I loved. Oh I thought it was great. I love him. <laughs> There's like an iridescence to his shade of green. I it was so incredible. <laughs> I really saw the Rick directing in the shootout that happened in the asteroids yeah it really it became horror real fast and it reminded me of his uh prison break episode in season one Mm -hmm. which also became horror really fast and i really enjoyed that i really like the pirates (laughs) i love pirates so i'm i'm into this i just 
I'm just going to say it. I kind of don't want Hondo Anaka to be in this, though. I just don't. But if he is, I'll probably be on here being like, that was great. So <laughs> it's... <laughs> I don't know what I want anyway, but I I liked these pirates. I thought they were great. And it also made me think about how ILM did all the visual effects for Pirates of the Caribbean too. You know, they created Davy Jones and that special effect situation really does still hold up oh, yeah. when it is completely all CGI. It is so good. And I think that that is one of I don't I can't speak for the people who worked on it, but I do feel like it is one of those one of their like proudest moments. So I do feel like it's cool to have pirates that are sort of resembling that whole situation um, on the Mandalorian. I don't know. I'm into it. I'm I'm intrigued to see where this story thread goes. I like how the Mandalorian is setting up a couple different villains and a couple different conflicts. And this is what a television show should do. Again, I've been on the record for saying that uh, if you don't want like multiple villains or multiple conflicts, like watch a movie. <laughs> That's the television show should have a couple different threads that come back around. And I like the pirates being one of them because it's not only a connection to grief too, in order to protect Navarro, um, but also, I don't know. It was pretty badass. It was cool. I liked it. <laughs> I think uh, you and I in the past like six months have had a complete reckoning with creatures in Star Wars and they've become like our new favorite thing and just like weird people and like non-human creatures and stuff like that, species. I just feel like you and I have been really obsessed with them as of late <laughs> in a way that we're on a journey. We, we're on we a usually journey. we've never been before, honestly, like don't get me wrong. Like we all love the Wookiees, the Ewoks and everything like that. But Charlotte and I have been talking so much about how we are so excited to buy super weird Jabba merch at our <laughs> celebration this year solely because of the mighty Jabba collector Instagram account who has which we've talked about already. Yes. This is the second time we've serviced this, uh, well, I don't <laughs> this know year <laughs> on the podcast. That account alone has made me a giant Jabba fan and also has made me love other creatures. I don't know what it is about that account, but every time they showcase a creature toy memorabilia that they have, I'm like, yeah, I need that. I need the incredible, adorable, amazing. I want it. <laughs> like, I don't know. Anyway, so I feel Same. like Pirate King Gorian Shard is he like falls into that category where he's just like so crazy out there that the Mia five years ago would be like, all right, but like, let's get back to Din. Now I'm like, tell me everything there is to know about King Gorian Shard and what he's doing. Does he exactly. have any Dren gear in his DNA? I need to know. <laughs> uh, oh my God, that would be so cool. Actually. Right. Actually, like I, that really just kind of came to me in the moment, but like, wow. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so we'll, you know what we'll do? We'll put a pin in that. Putting a pin in it, yeah. for sure. Let's talk about Bo-Katan, yes. um, queen, the... Our angsty queen. Queen of sitting on queen the throne. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I can't handle how much I love the staging of this. I've loved it since we saw it, a preview in at Celebration. It That image has stuck with me. It's a very strong image. And I just like the concept of... Bo stewing over the fact that she didn't get the dark saber. Um and this connection between Din and Bo, it's an interesting one. Am I shipping it? I don't know, man. I think <laughs> <laughs> I think I could, but I just feel like um I really like where the story is going by intertwining these two characters and their histories and their ideologies, which I think are similar but also super different, and I can't wait to dive more into it. Yeah, you know, uh, Katie Sackhoff described Din and Bo's relationship. She described that Din was a distraction and a nuisance to Bo-Katan this season, which I think are very different words than I think what I would have expected. I think I might have expected something like a partner or antagonist or something like that. But distraction and nuisance, uh, it feels like queen behavior, right? Like, She's like, I'm up mm -hmm. here, you're down here. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, Din is the one with the dark saber. So anyway, I, I thought those were really interesting words to describe their relationship. And I think we kind of see that in these first two episodes. And I feel like our discussion of Bo is kind of transitioning us into chapter 18, The Minds of Mandalore, you know, when she's just you know sitting on the throne and uh, Din, I don't know, decides to ask her what she's up to. And she's like, nothing, nothing. <laughs> That was basically your answer. <laughs> Just like everyone dispersed, like no one cares anymore. Everyone about hates me, me of... and it's your fault. <laughs> yeah, because I don't have the dark saber. I think there's such this kind of interesting dichotomy between Din and Bo in the things that they really hold fast to about Mandalore and its history and its culture and the things that they think are foolish, right? Like Din could care less about the Darksaber and how one wins it, but to Bo, it's everything. And then, you know, Din only cares about the living waters and his atonement, but Bo calls him a fool and says there's nothing magical about the waters there. So what about again, our bigger questions this season. So what about Mandalore actually matters? And I think that conversation is something that I think it's going to come down to what Din and Bo discover perhaps together about what actually matters about Mandalore. And it feels like the Mythosaur could be something that becomes this uniting piece, even above the living waters, above the Darksaber for everyone. I can't wait to see kind of how this is explored because the destruction on Mandalore is so much bigger than the destruction that we were talking about earlier on Navarro uh, to the point that everyone thinks it's cursed, it's poisoned. I kind of had to laugh because Bo-Katan is so close to Mandalore and like no one was it as easy as just putting a droid down there to check the well she she knows it's not it's not poisoned. She says it. She says that that's a lie. It's it's just um no one will believe her in uniting it and starting over. And that's why she thinks she needs the dark saber. But I do, I think that when she's, this is the thing that is interesting about Din and something that you say a lot is Din takes things so literally. Mm-hmm. And when Bo says, you know, it's poisoned, I think that Din says, oh, so it's cursed by the poison, like the physical poison of the air. You can't breathe it. But instead, it's way more, it's more mythic. It's more metaphorical than that. The Mandalore, the the planet is cursed because it is ruins, because there are monsters around, because it was ravaged, because there's no one can live there, because there's nothing left. And I think that Din doesn't have the, under, like he he talks about the stories, talks about the songs, but he doesn't have the experience, I guess, of understanding how deep the history and the reality also goes, I guess. So I think your question of what about Mad- Mandalore actually matters, I I tend to sort of think that what we're doing in The Mandalorian is similar to what we expected and what was partially done, I guess, in the sequel trilogy and what was practically the thesis statement of the sequel trilogy and what we really hoped that it would underscore in The Rise of Skywalker, which was taking from the past and building something new um, that was that would acknowledge like any sort of dark past, but like form more united front in the future. Obviously, that's a very broad statement, but there has to be some sort of recycling of understanding the myths, the stories, the songs, but also not taking this like a cult-like element from it that um, is part of all the different factions, I guess, that split off. And that is Bo's like major concern, right? She says... What pains me is seeing our own kind fight each other time and time again, killing each other for reasons too confusing to explain. It made us weak. We had no hope of being smashed by the fist of the Empire. And to me, I feel like that when she said that, that was the thesis statement of all the things that Bo is right about. Bo is completely right that the Mandalorians with their armor, with their creeds, with their beliefs, like are all split up, all separate factions. We saw this in the Clone Wars. Bo herself has experienced this because she's left certain areas. The Night Owls were once part of Death Watch and now Din is part of Death Watch, right? I, I think that all these things are... She literally recognizes that it's all too confusing to explain and I really appreciated <laughs> that too. because, hello, I've been saying that forever. But I think that 
it's so confusing to explain, but how do you unite it? How do you move forward with all of this? She calls Mandalore a tomb. And so how can you rise up from that? I think that you talked about how the mines and where they were in the caves and things like that were very much descending into hell. And I completely agree with you. It really was. Nothing was living there. Even those those beings that really looked like orcs to me, which sort of meant and um, they looked like orcs to me. And I feel like uh, they were similar in the way that <laughs> Bo is like, they survived. So how, what else happened? you know, what else did, you know? And um, anyway, I just think that there's a lot there that how do we move Mandalore forward? Because it, it did used to be this great thing. I also thought a little bit, and maybe this is a little out there, but I'm just going to go for it. Um, when Din picks up the helmet in the sand, it's a big moment in the trailer. And I think it's a big moment here because he recognizes that there were warriors here who are now just part of the sand. Um, it really made me think of, Aww. yeah, it, I mean, it is sad. It really made me think of Percy Blythe Shelley's poem Ozymandias, which is used so much in Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, Ryan Johnson's episode title for one of the greatest episodes ever of television on, of Breaking Bad. But Ozymandias is actually one of my favorite poems. I had to recite it in college. I think about it a lot. Um, and it's a poem about... Uh, a statue from a great time remaining in a barren sand wasteland and how it was once a symbol of pride of a huge culture and now it is nothing among the sand. So I really thought about that when he picked up that old helmet. I think that the meaning of the poem though is how things were so powerful at a time and if you hold on to the power, it really, it doesn't, uh, there's so much vanity in holding up that like that story, that power, that pride that doesn't withstand the test of time or technology um, and will just be left for the sand to barely remember it and ravage it. Um, and so the the takeaway is, is it better to live a simple life, a less a life with less pride, less power? Um, and the answer is yes. So I wonder if how do we take some sort of lesson from this like ancient poem, not ancient poem, it's not that old, it's like from the Romantic <laughs> era, this poem about ancient times to uh, describe this because I just actually would bet money that this was talked about in the writer's room and the the way that he picked up that helmet in the sand. So I just think that if I wanted to think a little bit about what the future of Mandalore was... I think it's, we started this season with Din and Grief talking about like real estate and living a simple life. So what does that mean for the, like pushing forward the culture of Mandalore and the history of Mandalore? We even have Bo reading a plaque about history in Mandalore, which is great. And I just think, how do you take the good of the past and move it forward for a different time? Um, especially as we move into the time of the First Order. All these thoughts are just like swirling in my head constantly. I don't have any answers, but I do think that it's worth it to explore some of these connections. Yeah, I don't really think I could have said it any better than you did, but I think I'll just add that you were totally right earlier in that Din has such a limited understanding, I think, of Mandalore in a lot of ways. He's got this kind of, I would say like storybook version almost from the armorer and uh, the creed and all of that, but it's been so distilled into these ten these unmovable tenets, right? Like when um, Din first goes to the armorer in episode one, and she says that you can't get redemption anymore. Like it's just it's off the table because the living minds are are gone, the living waters are gone. That is such a bummer, um, such an impossible but, standard, these things that cannot be changed uh, yes. in their eyes. Um, and then Din is telling Grogu in all of this, you know, as they're flying back and forth between uh, Bo and we haven't even talked about Tatooine and Mandalore and all these places, you know, that he's 
he's never even been there. He's never seen it himself. And in this huge moment, right, of being there for the very first time of finally making it to the living waters, atonement is within his grasp. But he's also with someone that knew this place when it was, you know, alive. You know, now it's just haunted by ghosts, more or less. I'm sure that's how Bo feels. I think you were kind of uh, alluding to that earlier. At least that's what I was thinking when you were talking about Bo being back on Mandalore, which in a side, I really felt like we could have had a Satine reference here, but that's okay. I think it, I think it could come later. And it was great to hear it's about come later. her father, but I was yeah. really expecting to get a Satine reference here. Um, but he's, he's here with her, the person who actually did all of these things, and he's not even listening. He just immediately starts taking off, I guess, certain pieces of armor and you know, reciting the creed himself and diving into the waters without even, I don't know, really thinking about the reality or or he's just so overcome. I don't know. It's just that that's the only thing he's focusing on is that atonement, that redemption, being in the living waters. I guess, does it count, right? He went in the living waters. Does it count or no, um, he went all the way to the bottom. <laughs> uh, so I he was interrupted just like the kid was. I know. It's, I know. It's not meant to be. But but what is meant to be is this knowledge that the mythosaur exists. Yeah. So what are they going to do with that? The mythosaur, it feels like this starting over point. Uh, so what you were talking about earlier with this reconciliation of the past and moving into the future, it feels like the mythosaur could be symbolic of of getting to that point again of ushering Mandalore into a new age, into a new era as they prepare for the first order. And I guess everything that's going to happen there. I was going to say one thing that you were talking about in terms of how um, the armor was pretty rejecting Din's plea to be redeemed. What really changed her mind about that wasn't Din's insistence of the mines or the fact that he could find the mines, but Honestly, it was Grogu, Grogu sitting at the table. It it makes me think, and I think Grogu is a character that we haven't talked enough about, actually. Like, number one, they definitely got a new puppet, and the new puppet is, it, Ooh, it yeah, rules. Just, oh, my gosh. So cute. Everything is so cute and perfect and amazing, and I love Grogu so much. And I think Grogu got a really big moment in this episode when we start off with Din teaching Grogu how to navigate the galaxy, and then him being able to take instructions pilot the ship, go get Bo, and then bring them back. And I think that was great. I really loved that. And I've been a big talker for a while now about how Grogu isn't just a pet. Grogu is a character who changes and grows. And I we're seeing it happen in this episode. And I was so excited. (laughs) You know, we have a character who's a Jedi and actually was referred to as a Mandalorian in this episode. Din uses our people um, as a pronoun there. And I thought that was interesting. So uh, he, we have a Mandalorian Jedi. We have a Tarvisla. We have someone who could be a huge uh, key to uniting Mandalore again. And again, we're putting a pin in that. <laughs> but I do think that that is important for us to note that a major thing about the armor changing her mind, I'm sure that Din's insistence had something to do with it, but I do think that Boba, Boba, that Grogu was the key here. That's interesting because I found myself thinking a lot about what, was it Luke that actually said this in the book of Boba Fett? But basically that Din's whole lifetime will now be defined by Grogu and only a, a very small piece of Grogu's life will be with the Mandalorian, I should say, with Jin. So when it comes to, like if you're alluding to Grogu being the one to usher forth this new time of Mandalore as the Mandalorian Jedi, I wonder what the timeline does look like on that, or or rather for Grogu's age, because he still is very, very young and still will be young for a long time. You know what I mean? I think you're you're right. Like we have a Mandalorian Jedi here. That has to mean something in in all of this considering the start of Mandalorian history with the Jedi and the dark saber, right? Like this is all leading somewhere. But I'm curious to see how they orchestrate it in the story itself. Yeah, me too. I have a lot of faith that they're going to be able to weave a lot of this together. I'm very intrigued. I can't 
I cannot wait. Um, I think this episode was so good. Not to, I'm not like trying to wrap it up, but I do think this episode was better than the first episode. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's just because this really catered to people who have uh, followed a lot of the animation and things like that. This was very much a, oh my gosh, like I've seen this place before in animation. Yeah. Actually, I think I told you that I felt like there was a moment when they were walking down the caverns in the civic center that maybe they could have shown it what it looked like in the past, but maybe we're like working towards that. I don't know. Yeah. Also, we haven't really talked about how absolutely scary those creatures were, that creature with the legs was. <laughs> it was so Phil Tippett. It, it was, was so very, Phil yeah, Tippett. In a huge way. <laughs> yeah. It was amazing. It was so scary. And I really liked that they really pushed that I thought yeah yeah and I think uh yeah I think that part was so scary especially the piece with the the blood it definitely felt like he was yeah siphoning off his blood or something that was it was super spooky and that there was just a smaller one and a smaller one and a smaller (laughs) just was a lot it was very spooky and uh I thought it was a great kind of moment or way to showcase Grogu's growth because you have this kind of, I would say, stereotypical, scary situation of someone being captured. Like the Mandalorian is basically in this coffin, this iron coffin being rotated and blood is being sucked out of him. And you've got this crazy spider thing going after him with a giant eyeball. It it really is kind of the stuff of nightmares, (laughs) I think, and of scary movies. And then of course you have our young child here who then has to overcome those fears and save the day and it was so cute when he was trying to use the force to rescue din and realized he couldn't or maybe he was too scared at that point i don't know but then he you know makes it all the way back in his pod and (laughs) gets all the way to Bo, who of course can't say no to grogu and i i loved that whole sequence and i don't know if we said this already but you can even tell that grogu is growing up and changing based off of his voice and how he sounds and even Pelly, you know to reference Tatooine is like oh he said my name he's he's totally growing up he's speaking now are these his first words and we're getting all these kind of clues and seeing a lot more agency with Grogu the way that he even clearly controls his pod his pram and everything just signs that he is growing up more and has more agency and more opinions, honestly, about the things that are going on. Uh, We see him being a little skeptical of Bo. He's very protective of R5 and, of course, the Din himself. So it's just I thought that Grogu had a lot of really standout moments, especially in episode two. Uh, Right. Of course, the whole rescue was orchestrated by him. But it's clear how they've really upped their game with Grogu as a puppet, as a character, too. And he really felt he really felt more independent even than in episode one. Yeah. Um, I was thinking a little bit when you were talking about the blood being siphoned from Din, which is so nasty. If you do identify it as sort of the ultimate nightmare scenario, it's not just the ultimate nightmare scenario, but it is the nightmare scenario for Grogu. Oh, who no, has no, no been no. <laughs> tested no. and taken by the Empire for his blood, which is said by Moff Gideon and his M count, the midi-chlorian count. No. So I think that that was interesting for Grogu to see that happen to his dad. Oh, that's such a good point. Wow. I know that people look at the Mandalorian as a simple, silly show, but I think, and I, I just don't think it is because I think that so many decisions and like artistic choices go into reinforcing the character's paths and traumas and their way forward mm-hmm. with every single beast, alien, conflict that we have. And I think it's worth – I always – I keep saying this, but I do think it is necessary for us to examine every single time that uh, like a conflict arises and how this all has to do with their main protagonists. But even with grief in Navarro – the antagonists being the pirates that were once his allies, having to go yes. against his his former self in a lot of ways, kill the shadow. Yes. Um, exactly. It's, it's all purposeful. Yeah. I mean, it's killing the shadow, perhaps step one, but then integrating the shadow step two. So how do you how do you do that? I don't know. It's I think there's there's a lot there. And I do think that as 
John Favreau has expressed so much. He is so interested in exploring these mythic elements. And I think they're all there is the point. Very sad to think about Grogu witnessing that as like a nightmare scenario and being completely tested to his abilities. I mean, he showed some like intense bravery. Yeah, yeah. Especially if he was thinking about that in the moment when he was trying to use the force that might have impacted his ability to help Din in that moment. And I I loved Bo's conversation with him as they were going down of, you know, well, I used to fight with Jedi, you know, like I knew some. They were pretty nice. <laughs> we got along. And then I thought it was just so cute how she was like, you, how good are you at the Force? You must be quite good at it if you got back to me all alone. And it just felt like, oh, wow, look how big Grogu is. <laughs> he got here all by himself. <laughs> I don't know. I really liked it. Um, it's also worth it to point out that in the N1 Starfighter, there's Din, who's the bravest, and then maybe Grogu underneath him, and then we have R5, <laughs> who is a scaredy cat. So oftentimes I feel like in stories, scaredy cats bring out the bravery in another person who is also yeah. scared, right? Yeah. Because, <laughs> And I think that that was a major purpose of R5 being included here, not just as like a catalyst to get Din out of the ship and exploring himself, but also pushing Grogu there because um, he was very nervous about that and I think formed a little bit of an attachment to R5. I really liked that, oh, the yeah. whole thing with Peli and Peli um, ripping off that one Rodian. I loved that. I've had a 180 with Peli too. <laughs> I feel like I never wasn't, I wasn't like a huge fan in season one and I think I became a fan in Book of Boba Fett and now I really love her and I think she's so funny. And uh, I, I don't know. I think it was really cool to see Tatooine also transform a little bit and have a major celebration for Boonta Eve with fireworks. And I mean, if Anakin could see them now. <laughs> she does mention, are the huts back? Are you taking out Boba Fett? I thought that was an interesting comment. Yeah. Taking out Boba Fett? What? Like, babe, where have um, you been? <laughs> Yeah, I thought they were friends. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> so I don't I don't know. Uh, maybe Pelly just doesn't understand or know, but that was the mention of Boba Fett that we needed. I really thought for a moment we were going to see Boba, but I guess things are good on Tatooine, perhaps because of him. Yeah. <laughs> you said that so forcefully, like, perhaps because of him. <laughs> yeah. Um, Big Boba Fett stand now. So everything, has, everything has changed in the past few years. I just... <laughs> I don't know who I am as a Star Wars fan anymore. I just love it all. But just, yeah, I, I take it in day by day. Okay? Yeah, yeah. What new thing will enter into my Star Wars uh, subconscious for things that I can't live without anymore? Mm -hmm. Right now, mm -hmm. it's Job of the Hut somehow, <laughs> specifically Job of the Hut merchandise. I don't know. I don't know. Next, King, uh, Pirate King Gorian Shard. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> the, the whole situation with R5, though, was so hilarious. And again, I'm just like, Din, come on, my guy. He's like, I thought you said he was built for adventure. And Ellie's like, what? What? I can't hear you. <laughs> and R5 is just so scared the whole time. And Din is like, yeah, this will go well. <laughs> Such a dummy sometimes, but we love him. Yeah, so I think that I think that kind of brings us to the end of our discussion and our notes that we have on these two episodes. I think these were a great kickoff to season three, episode two, especially. I'm really looking forward to what is coming down the pipeline for this season. We talked about this in the trailer episode and I think it's pretty clear to see in these two episodes, but there is the complete tonal shift, I think, in The Mandalorian, and I'm really excited for it going forward. Um, so we will be back next week to talk about Chapter 19, Episode 3 of Season 3, and I can't wait to see what happens next now that I guess only Bo has technically seen the Mythosaur. We don't know if Din was conscious enough to see it, you know? So, so true. we'll find out kind of next what our next steps are <laughs> from there. I'm like all in oh, yeah. on The Mandalorian right now. I'm like really excited and I don't know. It feels so good to be back. There's going to be some really great Mythosaur merch at Celebration. <laughs> I – okay. I just have to get this off the, my chest. I love Andor and like honestly every show that we've gotten. But watching The Mandalorian – 
made me realize how much of a staple I find the Mandalorian in the Star Wars landscape these days mm. and how I've really just grown to love it so much. Yeah. And these characters really mean a lot to me. And I missed it. I think I just really missed it. And I didn't realize how much I missed it. Yeah, <laughs> It's just fun. The show is fun. Is. And I am very happy to have it back. Yeah. I Again, I loved the other shows. And I know that there's a lot of conversation about it that I haven't really been involved in. But all that said, I'm just really happy that The Mandalorian is back and it feels good to be in this headspace again. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. Well, that is going to wrap up this episode. I think, like I said, we will be back next week to talk about chapter 19 of The Mandalorian. We also have our Bad Batch discussion, our next Bad Batch discussion that will be coming out March 22nd, where we're talking about, what is it, episodes 12, 13, and 14, I believe. Mm, Are those the numbers? I think those are the numbers. (laughs) But (laughs) basically the last set of episodes before the Bad Batch finale so definitely check out that on the 22nd. Uh, today, when ep- Chapter 18 aired, was also the premiere of The Outpost from The Bad Batch, which is an incredible, incredible episode. So we were really – we've actually already recorded The Bad Batch episode. Um, so it was great to talk about it, honestly. So I'm really excited for you guys to hear that episode. And I'm really excited to see what's coming next for The Mandalorian. And if you want to talk to us about anything coming down the Star Wars pipeline, including Celebration, which is rapidly approaching, <laughs> you can find... <laughs> the schedule just we- released. We can't, we're and- not talking about it. We can't talk about it. I'm stressed. <laughs> <laughs> Every single panel is an absolute it banger. Looks, it, is, it looks like a it's smash. not okay. Like <laughs> th- this last, it's a. I don't. I, I can't even. <laughs> <laughs> Every single thing is so good. <laughs> yeah, we'll probably be talking more about our preparation and stuff online. So if you want to see more of that, specifically celebration content, or talk to us about anything else Star Wars related, you can find us on Twitter at SkytalkersPod or our personal handles. Mine is at Caitlin Plusher. Charlotte's is at Crarity. We also have our website, skytalkers.com, our TikTok, our Instagram, our Facebook, all great places to find us. And if you have a couple minutes and would like to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we would so, so, so appreciate it as it helps other people find our show and join in the conversation. And if you're looking for other ways to support us, you can head on over to our Patreon and check out our different reward tiers there. And I want to say a huge thank you to these patrons, Catherine, Lakshana, Alex, Amber, Matt, BJ, Jackson, Sophie, Raphael, Emma, Kimberly, Megan, Courtney, Molly, Megan, Daniela, Adam, Lady Valkyrie, Froppy, Blessed Cheesemaker, Matza, Neil, Savannah, Daniel, John, Jennifer, Aliyah, and Kels. Thank you so much for supporting us. Yes, thank you guys so much. And until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you.